Hello and welcome to LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Nurses Assessment Coordination, ANAC. I'm your host, Rebecca, and joining me today is ANAC Master Teacher, Carol Mayer, to discuss ICD-10 and PDPM. Welcome, Carol. Thank you, Rebecca. Carol, skilled nursing facilities have been using ICD-10-CM codes since 2015. Why is there such a push now for SNFs to improve the accuracy and completeness of diagnosis coding? Well, Rebecca, the ICD-10 coding has always been important, but now that PDPM, the new Medicare payment system, is beginning this October, there's a realization of the importance of the ICD-10 codes. In PDPM, the ICD-10 code for the principal diagnosis, for example, will need to map to the therapy components of PDPM. And so we will need an accurate and specific principal diagnosis that has all of the correct codes and as specific as possible. And some of the codes will not map. And so that means that is not an acceptable ICD-10 code for a principal diagnosis. And there's other parts of the PDPM system, and we'll be talking about those today as well, that are affected by ICD-10 coding. And so it's important that every nursing home has the ability to accurately code resident diagnoses, even if they don't have Medicare, because it is the resident's medical record. But I think the focus on ICD-10 has intensified because of the new PDPM payment system. It sounds like we'll be hearing a lot more about ICD-10 as we get closer to October. Carol, what do you think is the biggest mistake people make when coding diagnosis? Well, there are a couple things that come to mind. One of the big things is that nursing facilities don't have often professional coders or people who've had training in ICD-10 coding. And so they are just taking codes from a hospital record and just putting it into the resident's SNF record, even if those diagnoses are no longer appropriate. For example, if a resident goes into the hospital with uh, cholecystitis, their gallbladder is all inflamed, and that's the hospital's principal diagnosis. But during the hospital stay, the resident had their gallbladder removed Cholecystitis is not an appropriate diagnosis for the nursing home, but we often see that those codes show up in the resident's medical record in the SNF stay because the coder or the medical records professional in the facility just moves the hospital codes forward. I think the other major error that I see is that The SNFs are not always familiar with where to find the correct codes or who can diagnose, and they're just taking a code that looks right to them instead of asking the physicians to specify. And only physician and physician extenders can diagnose, and it's really critical that nursing home staff members are querying the physician to get the clarification they need instead of making coding assumptions. And coding assumptions cannot occur in a a medical record and should not and cannot occur for the payment system. So it's really critical that the diagnoses only come 
from the physician or physician extender who are those people who can diagnose. It sounds like communication is very important. What tips would you offer skilled nursing facilities to have complete and accurate diagnoses? Well, to start with, they're going to need to receive from the hospital all of the important medical records for their new residents. So that would include the hospital discharge summary, all the progress notes from the physicians during the hospital stay, the surgical reports, any labs and x-rays and MRIs and CAT scans and, and notes from the specialists that they've seen in the hospital. Cardiology note would give you a lot of information about specific types of heart failure, for example, and an infection prevention physician or infection specialist in the hospital physician would often identify the specific types of infections that the resident has. And, and so getting the data is very important and also asking the attending physician in the SNF to clarify any unspecified diagnoses. So they need to be able to obtain the data from the hospital, from the attending physician, and have to be able to have access to asking the physicians whenever the diagnoses need to be more specified. Carol, I know there's been some confusion about this. Who do you think should be assigned to complete ICD-10 coding in the skilled nursing facility? Well, CMS has very clearly said that it's not up to them, it's up to the SNF, who should be appending the ICD-10 codes. And there's not a requirement for a certain credential or discipline to do that, but it does need to be someone who has had ICD-10 coding training. I actually believe it needs to be a team of people. I don't think it really should be on one person's shoulders. So the team needs to look over all the medical records where the physicians have entered diagnoses and together come up with what they think is the one principal diagnosis, the major reason that the resident is being admitted to receive skilled care in the nursing home. And then all the other comorbidities, the other diagnoses that are supporting the need for the resident to have skilled coverage, Medicare coverage in the nursing home. And that would take you know, a lot of oversight of all of the documentation by the physician and then determining what diagnoses need to be further clarified by the physician. But again, I, I think it needs to be a team, that approach, uh, where the team is coming together and making those decisions on which diagnoses are active for that resident. And then together, looking up the codes that they are convinced that they have the most specific code and then checking to see if that principal diagnosis code will map to the payment system and is not listed as return to provider. Carol, for this team, what tools do you think they need? The most important thing they need, besides the medical record of the resident that we've already talked about and all that documentation, they need a current ICD-10-CM coding manual. And it should be an ICD-10-CM coding manual, not a PCS. Uh, the PCS manual is used in the hospital and not used in the nursing home. So they need an ICD-10 manual. They should not be coding 
from the internet or asking Siri or Alexa or Google, you know, or just taking what the hospital said, they actually need to look up the code correctly that they're identifying the diagnosis, they're finding that in the alphabetic index in the ICD-10 manual, they're drilling down into the most specific and then looking at the code in the tabular list where they start with the first three characters, making sure that they're reading all of the instructions for that code under the first three characters of the code that they were sent to, to look to see what's included, what's excluded, what needs to come first, what else they need, and then finding the most specific code to determine if they need six characters or seven characters and making sure that the code is correct. So it only, in my opinion, can be done with an ICD-10 coding manual. They certainly should not be coding from lists and internet files can lead you to the wrong code. It might be an old answer. Anything you Google on the internet might not be the most recent, might not include all the correct answers, items, characters, and it also doesn't give you all of the information that the manual does about what code needs to come first, what else needs to be included, and what is excluded. That's very good advice. Thank you, Carol. Listeners, please stay tuned while we take a quick commercial break. PDPM has increased the importance of accurate ICD-10-CM diagnosis by shifting Medicare payments from therapy volume to resident characteristics. ANAC's new ICD-10 for SNFs virtual workshop certificate program helps ensure that you're coding accurately and ready for the PDPM transition. Learn more at anac.org backslash virtual underscore workshops. Welcome back. Let's continue our discussion with ANAC master teacher Carol Mayer about ICD-10 and PDPM. Carol, if a skilled nursing facility does not have a competent ICD-10 coder, what impact will this have on the skilled nursing facility under PDPM? Well, financially, the most important thing that will impact the payment under PDPM are the resident characteristics and most specifically the ICD-10 codes. The diagnosis codes will impact the principal diagnosis, which maps to speech and PT and OT. The speech therapy also has a list of comorbidity diagnoses, ICD-10 codes that can increase the payment per day for speech if the ICD-10 codes are correctly entered in I-8000 of the MDS. And then there's a whole new payment component in PDPM that we don't have right now under RUGS-4, and that is the non-therapy ancillary component, which is made up of about, there's about 1,500 ICD-10 codes that can impact the payment uh, for the non-therapy ancillary uh, component. And if you don't have a competent coder who's looking at all the diagnoses, understanding we can only include those diagnoses that have been written by the physician in the last 60 days and they're actively affecting the resident in the last seven days, that the code is coded to the highest level of specificity uh, and entered into the MDS itself, 
then there's going to be payment implications. It could be major payment implications if the ICD-10 codes are not correctly appended. Also, CMS is saying for Medicare reviews after PDPM begins, the reviews are going to be focusing on the coding of the resident characteristics on the MDS, and that would certainly include the ICD-10 code. So if a facility's coder is not accurate or doesn't understand ICD-10 coding, it could have a negative impact during Medicare reviews. It sounds like this role is going to be very important in the future when we start implementing PDPM. Correct. Can you explain how the new MDS item I-20B will be used under PDPM? Yes. Right now, before October 1st, 2019, we don't have an I-20B. We have an I-20A, which is not usually even entered. So I-20B is a brand new MDS item, and the item will require us to enter one and only one specific diagnosis that is the primary reason the resident requires admission to the SNF for skilled care. So it's the principal diagnosis, and that principal diagnosis should also match the principal diagnosis on the claim for that five-day MDS. And, and so this is a one diagnosis. So of all the things wrong with a resident, all the diagnosis they have, the team has to decide what's the one main diagnosis that requires them to have skilled care, which might not be the same as the primary reason they went to the hospital. Actually, it often is not, but it does have to be a condition that was treated during the three-day qualifying a stay uh, or arose during skilled care in, in the SNF, but it could be a secondary diagnosis for a hospital stay that is the primary reason to be in the nursing home. And that one diagnosis in I-20B will map to the physical therapy and occupational therapy components. And actually, to the payment for the PT and OT components is based completely on the coding in I-20B. So which of the four, it takes the 10 possible mapping categories and compresses them into four. Which of those four would it qualify for? multiplied times the case mix, which would be determined by the diagnosis along with the section GG functional score that from the, you know, from the five-day MDS will give you, or in an IPA for the, the three-day look back for the IPA. So it's the principal diagnosis and the functional score are the only qualifiers for the payment. So the principal diagnosis is in I-20B. It's going to be critical to the payment of the PT and OT component. The speech component also looks at I-20B, but the I-20B principal diagnosis will only impact the speech component if it maps as an acute neurological diagnosis. On the UBO4 claim, skilled nursing facility staff have been selecting a principal diagnosis. Can you tell us how the principal diagnosis from the claim relates to the primary diagnosis at I-20B? Well, CMS in their training and their frequently asked questions has stated that they expect that the principal diagnosis on the claim will match the primary diagnosis listed in I-20B. 
They do say that they're not going to set up edits at the moment to make sure that they match. You know, and during a stay, a primary diagnosis could change. Um, and so the principal diagnosis, if it could could be changing during the stay, and if an IPA is not done, the MDS would still have the original primary diagnosis listed. But I think on the very first claim for the first for the Medicare stay, the expectation is that the code for the principal diagnosis on the claim would match the primary diagnosis in I-20B. How else are ICD-10 codes and diagnoses used under PDPM? Specifically, how do they relate to the SLP, NTA, and nursing components? Well, the ICD-10 codes for speech, the main issue, there are three big parts to the payment system for speech. And the first of those big potential boxes of payment would be related to the principal diagnosis. And that only is triggered as a payment if the principal diagnosis in I-20B is acute neuro. But the second big component is for the speech comorbidity diagnoses. And some of those comorbidity diagnoses come from MDS items like checkboxes in Section I, but the majority of the comorbidities are specific ICD-10 codes that are codes for speech or language or swallowing issues related to specific CVAs, for example, so a late effect of a recent CVA, or it could be cancers that affect the mouth or the throat um, that would certainly impact payment for speech. So speech has a whole tab on the CMS mapping just for the comorbidity diagnoses that affect the payment. Non-therapy ancillaries, again, there are about 1,500 ICD-10 codes that can impact the payment for the non-therapy ancillary. Non-therapy ancillary, by the way, um, it would include payments for the medications that we're giving residents, lab tests, x-rays, equipment, uh, and so things like a diagnosis of morbid obesity that can only be given by the doctor, not by the dietitian could impact payment because we would have to have bariatric equipment, for example, or the diagnoses listed under the non-therapy ancillaries are very specific. And so, for example, if it says opportunistic infection, it's not the typical staph and strep and MRSA. They're much more specific bacteria and viruses that they've listed for the ICD-10 codes. So again, that's why getting those very specific diagnoses from the physicians, from um, culture results can very, very much impact our payment. And they're things that right now we probably are not necessarily putting an I-8000 on the MDS because we already have checkboxes that show infections, but we are not necessarily coding the causative agents. And so there are things with PDPM that we're going to have to step up our game and make sure that we have the specifics, we have the documentation back up in the medical record that is from a physician or physician extender and a radiologist uh, who reads the X is a physician, the surgeon is a physician, and the 
all those consulting physicians and physician extenders or physicians. So getting all of that non-therapy ancillary item is one of the top paying item. The top paying component on PDPM is the nursing component. And next is the non-therapy ancillary. So those diagnosis for non-therapy ancillaries really can impact payment under PDPM. Now, on the nursing component, there are definitely diagnoses that can impact which of the case mix groups that the resident qualifies for. And again, the physician must document those diagnoses. It can't be something I'm assuming from the symptoms I see as a nurse. And so again, all of those querying, asking the doctor for more specificity is critical for every one of the PDPM components that are case mix based. Thank you, Carol. Oftentimes, skilled nursing facilities need to query the physician to clarify a diagnosis. What tips can you offer to make this a successful process? Well, I think one of the first things that we should be doing to prepare for PDPM is to include our physicians in our education. The physicians do need to know about the new payment system and about the importance of the specific diagnoses and how those codes will be used in the payment system. I've actually done some education for physician groups at the request of some of my clients and the physicians were very interested in the payment system number one, and number two, they wanted to know how to help to make sure that they were entering diagnoses in the record in a way that was going to be helpful to the SNF, and also that they wouldn't have to be having all these queries asking them to specify. So I think that it would, it would behoove the SNF to start now, talk to your medical director, and tell them all about the payment system involve the medical director in helping you educate your own physicians about the importance of very specific diagnoses. And the doctors don't have to put codes. The doctors are not coders. The doctors just need to document the diagnoses in the highest specificity as possible. And also, it would help if the medical director would go with the SNF staff to meet with a hospitalist. I think the hospital physicians are not aware of the payment system in the nursing home and the impact of diagnoses and diagnosis coding in the hospital. For example, often the hospitalists are resolving diagnoses when they discharge a resident when the diagnosis is still truly an active diagnosis. And so that the physicians know that they shouldn't say that the pneumonia is resolved if the resident's still going to need treatment for the pneumonia once they get to the nursing home. The nursing home, and if they receive a resolved diagnosis, it's not an active diagnosis they can add to the medical record or use as a principal diagnosis without first asking the resident's attending physician to give them, if, it, if it's appropriate, that diagnosis as a diagnosis for the medical record. So I think that we need to do some pre-work that everyone is aware. And then secondly, there will still be times, even if we are educating the physicians and the hospitalists about PDPM, that we will have to ask questions. And so having a simple template for a query form that you can 
either fax or email to the physician would be very helpful. You have entered this documentation, this needs to be more specified, is it this, 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 or this, or blank, so that the physician can easily send a response back to you. The other thing is we're gonna need this information in a quick turnaround time because you know the latest of the assessment reference date can be for a five day is day eight. So we need to have determined the principal diagnosis and gotten the query forms back from the physician or a telephone order or verbal order for the correct diagnosis by the ARD. So this will take a lot of coordination teamwork and cooperation from the physician. So again, having the physicians be notified of that before October 1st would be very helpful. Thank you, Carol. Those are some great tips. Any final thoughts to offer our audience about ICD-10 and PDPM? Uh, the only thing I can say is you want to make sure that your teams have had education and ANAC has some great courses available about ICD-10 coding and long-term care that your team is preparing and that already working. This shouldn't be waiting to October the 1st, but should be practicing now to set the principal diagnosis on admission and then looking at any time during the stay that a principal diagnosis might be changing that an IPA would be appropriate, and then that would also be a time to look at updating the diagnoses and reprioritizing them as well. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate your time today. This information will be very helpful to our members as they prepare for PDPM. Listeners, thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button so that you never miss a future update. For more resources and tools, please visit the ANAC website at www.aanac.org.